Hear the word of the Lord from John 3, 1 through 15. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Rob Spikestra. I'm one of the other elders here and a pastor of discipleship. And it's my privilege to be able to preach uh, God's word to you, have the opportunity to preach God's word to you this morning. We are in the Gospel of John. And as we continue in this Gospel, we've tried to remind you of John's purpose. And he states it clearly, thankfully, for us in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And it reads this way. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John wrote this gospel in order that those who read it would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed, that he is the Savior. And the second reason why he wrote this is that you would also come to understand who he is, and that is that he is the Son of God, like Father, like Son, he is God. So what we discovered last week, is that there is a serious problem in our ability to believe this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction. I'm going to make a connection between last week and this week's passage, and then uh, I will ask God's help uh, as we pray. So uh, look at verse 1 in our passage. It reads this way. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of 
the Jews. Now, the first thing I want you to see is how, God, how John is creating a connection from the previous verses into this, this chapter, chapter 1. And we know this, and that is that uh, the chapter divisions are not in the original and thus are not inspired. And as a result, sometimes we miss the context. Now, when I introduce someone, I don't normally say, I want you to meet a man of the CrossFit gym, Mike. I don't normally would say, I, I want you to meet a woman of the sales office, Tanya. That's not the way that I speak. It's, it's awkward to say it that way, but that's exactly what John is doing here. It's also awkward in the Greek. So he has a purpose here. See, John inserts a man to take us back to the principles found in verses 20, 23 through 25. See, look at verse 25 of chapter 2. By the way, if you don't have your Bibles open, that might be helpful. Chapter 2, verse 25. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. And now today... We have an encounter with just such a man named Nicodemus. So what, we, what did we learn from verses 23 through 25 last week, so long ago, seven days ago? Well, first, Jesus, being the Son of God, that is God, he is omniscient. What does that word mean? Well, it means that Jesus knows everything. And when we say that, we don't just say, I uh, mean that Jesus knows all the facts about everything. Yeah, he does know that in the world. But he also knows every single thing that has ever entered into our minds. He knows what is in our hearts. He knows why we do what we do, even when we don't understand why we do what we do. He knows more about us. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. And because of this, verse 23, even though many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, he did not entrust himself to them. This is actually a play on words that is difficult for us to pick up in our English translations, but the word, Greek word for believe, many believed in his name, is also translated trust. So it can be read this way. Many people trusted in Jesus, and yet Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Or you could just simply say they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Because he saw what was in their hearts. One of the reasons was that what, Peter, what Pastor Justin called eye faith. That people have an eye faith. And so we look back at verse 23 of chapter 2 and it says, Many believe in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And this was Nicodemus. He saw the many signs that Jesus was doing, and so he came to him uh, at night. So 
So what we're going to see in our passages, passage, verses 1 through 15, is this interaction with Nicodemus is a confirmation of what we learned last week in verses 23 through 25. And so if you did not get that message, if you didn't see it, I really encourage you to listen to it, to watch it from last week. Or if you already have watched it from last week or you were here last week, it may be useful to hear it again, see how it plays out in our passage today. So now let's just dive into this passage again. Like I said, I want to just do a little more of an introduction and then we'll, we'll pray for God's help. So diving into this and understanding now there's a connection, we learn a number of things about Nicodemus here. And by the way, there's a teaser. And the teaser is he does show up later in the Gospel of John in a remarkable way. But we're just going to look here. And the first thing we learn is that he is a Pharisee. Now, to understand the hold Pharisees had on the people, you need to understand a little bit of their history. See, the, the Pharisees came on the scene, made their mark about 200 years before Jesus arrives. And they do it in a dramatic, patriotic way, appealing to the everyday man and woman, everyday Jewish man and woman. See, they, they led a resistance against the notorious Greek Hellenistic king Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who ruled over Palestine that day. See, the Jewish people did not readily fit into the vision Antiochus had for his new empire. See, he was embracing a form of imperial, imperial colonialism. So Antiochus sought to bring about a sense of cultural uniformity. Much like we have going on today in our own culture where there is today this pressure to tote the progressive line of the preeminence of the authentic self, where self determines reality. See, the aim of any cultural uniformity is control. There's nothing new that's going on under the sun. And so Antiochus demanded the embracing of the Hellenistic way of life and the worship of the Greek pantheon, especially Zeus. And then he took on an epitaph uh, that is Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. He's calling himself God. God manifest. You want to know what Zeus wants? You just have to look to me, and I will tell you what Zeus wants of you cultural uniformity. And as a culmination, he proceeded to profane the temple in Jerusalem by erecting idols within the temple. And then he went so far as to sacrifice pigs on the altar, presumably to Zeus. Now, like in our day, Antiochus controlled the media and had an inordinate loud voice over and against the majority, but quiet voice of the everyday Jewish man and woman. And they had enough. Enter the Pharisees. Into the Pharisees, they became the voice. They led the resistance of the common man and woman and put up a stiff resistance. See, that's how they came upon the scene. 
Being strict and precise with the laws coupled with their popularity, they increased their influence then over the next 200 years. And unlike the other party in this two-party system of the Jewish system, they were not part of the aristocracy like the Sadducees. Rather, rather they generally controlled the teaching within the synagogues. In other words, they were in the churches of the everyday man and woman, a Jewish man and woman. And so they had influence in all the villages and towns and cities throughout the synagogue. And sadly, while they seem to represent the ordinary people, their seemingly unending interpretations of how the law is to be worked out to the day-to-day, they overwhelmed the people. In Jesus' most intense litany rebukes, Jesus says of them in Matthew 23, 4, he, he said, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. See, one characteristic that stands out and particularly relevant to this passage, is their emphasis on the external obedience to the law. They they saw the the world as something that we need to tame outside of us. And so Jesus said in that same Matthew 23, for you tithe mint and dill and common and you neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You, a little further down, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind, huh, you blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and that, then the outside also may be clean. Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. Second thing we learn about him is he has influence as a member of the Jewish ruling body. We see that at the end of verse 1. See, this is just another name for the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest authoritative body in the land and under Roman authority controlled all Jewish internal affairs. And so if you remember, I've uh, previously preached a little bit about the Sanhedrin or talked about the Sanhedrin. They were about around 70 members. And, and as I mentioned in those previous sermons, the Sanhedrin in our American terms is kind of like the judicial and the legislative and the executive branches all wrapped up into one one authoritative group. And so Nicodemus was no ordinary Pharisee, let alone no ordinary man. He had influence. But finally, the third thing we learn about him is found in verse 10, where Jesus identifies him, Nicodemus, as the teacher of Israel. At minimum, Jesus is identifying Nicodemus as at least one of, if not, the go-to guy. When it comes to the Old Testament, not only locally but nationally as a teacher of God's word. So he had authoritative sway as the teacher of Israel. This is the man who has come to Jesus. So when Jesus says, He did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The issue is not an individual being uninformed or uneducated or simple or unchurched. No, Nicodemus was none of those things. And yet, he couldn't get the gospel. 
So what this passage shows us is this. We are born, every human being, we are born into this world with a profound spiritual darkness that requires a new birth if we are to truly see that Jesus is the Savior. Or we could put it this way. If anyone should have seen that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, it should have been Nicodemus. So if Nicodemus was in the dark, what hope was there for the common man and woman like us? So now let us pray. So Father, you are helping us to see our condition apart from Christ, apart from your spirit. And so Father, we would pray that you would be at work because we in of ourselves will get nothing today out of your word apart from you doing your work. And so we invite you to come and do your work in our hearts and lives. Convict us of what we need to be convicted of. Give us repentance of what we need to turn away from and give us faith to believe in what is really true. Help us to see. Give us light, we pray this day. Father, you were kind to us in the first service, and you let us see Isla. So thank you, Father, that Isla was able to be here. She had the strength, Father, in the fight over cancer. She had the strength to be here. Uh, We thank you for that. We pray continue for her and for uh, Mike and Kaylee and and, uh, their parents, his, his parents. Lord, we just pray for your blessing upon this family. Continue to help them as they work through this fight. We would pray that you would give healing and wholeness to little Isla's body, we pray. We thank you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are three aspects which Nicodemus was in the dark, which is true of us all. Number one, we are in the dark about Jesus, who he really is. We are in the dark about about Jesus, who he really is. See, look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, the commentators, uh, they they have different ways they interpreted uh, Nicodemus' reason for coming at the night. Some say that Nicodemus, while intrigued by Jesus, he didn't really want other people to know that he was intrigued. So really, in one sense, he had a little bit of a fear of man. Uh, There's other commentators say, oh, no, that's not it at all. He wanted to have more leisurely and lengthy time and conversation. Uh, So he comes at night after the day's demands are over. Well, I think it's this. See, John was a master with words and much more poetic in his writings than the other Gospels. He uses dark and light throughout the Gospel of John, and he uses it in, in, as a contrast and as a symbolic throughout this Gospel. So I think he is tuning us in on Nicodemus's spiritual state. Oh, yeah. Now, literally, he did come at night. But the darkness is not just around Nicodemus, but within Nicodemus. He is dark about Jesus. See, look how he addresses Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So Nicodemus is respectful and recognizes that Jesus is a teacher. Haven't you heard that before? Yeah, he's a teacher. He's a good teacher. A teacher who has God's approval. He is, so he, Nicodemus, is coming to Jesus at best as a fellow teacher, but more likely as one who is over Jesus. 
as one who will decide whether or not Jesus is worthy of his time. How often have you came in here with that attitude? Is this really worthy of my time? Perhaps that's how you came in today. Do I really need to spend this time here? We become the determiner. We have our own agenda, and we're asking the question, is Jesus really worthy of my time? I will see. (laughs) See, at the core of who Nicodemus is, is this lack of appreciation for whom he is dealing with. But it's not just Nicodemus. He's coming on behalf of others. He says, we know, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God. And what qualifies Jesus as one approved by God in Nicodemus' mind and those he represents is this next statement. For no one should perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. See, again, from last week, they have eye faith, but eye faith is dead faith. That is, it's not saving faith. See, Nicodemus doesn't know who he is dealing with, and so he has a line of questioning. He wants to go down to determine who Jesus is and whether he's worthy of his time. See, there is a profound spiritual darkness in each one of us. We are born in this world not knowing who Jesus is. Number two, we are in the dark about the condition of our own soul. We are in the dark about the condition of our own soul. See, for the most part, we believe that when we enter into this world, you know, we're all right. I mean, how can you call a a beautiful little infant a sinner? (laughs) I mean, he's so cute. (laughs) I mean, weren't they beautiful up here, right? They are innocent. That's what we say. See, this is the cultural moment we live in where the problem is not within us, but the world around us. And matter of fact, the problem is that home you were born into and those parents you were given. And so the cultural message is as soon as we can separate a child from their parents, the better. It is then where they can be true to themselves and not have their parents and their homes dictate what is true and good and beautiful. It's there when they can now be true to their authentic self. See, that was surprisingly Nicodemus' problem. He didn't understand the condition of his own soul. So while he has a line of questioning, he wants to go down to determine who Jesus is and whether Jesus is worthy of his time. Jesus knows that Nicodemus will never come to the truth about him until he comes to believe the truth about the condition of his own soul. See, notice how abrupt Jesus is in taking over and changing the direction of this conversation. Jesus replied, truly, truly. Now, this is the first of three of these statements. The strongest statement that what is about to come is something you can absolutely trust in. Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. See, Jesus immediately gets at the issue. It is the ability to spiritually see And what does he say? No one can see. The problem is not in the signs. The problem is the spiritual blindness to what the signs point to. 
Jesus, the Savior and Son of God. On this side of being born again by the grace of God in my life, I always marvel when people seem indifferent to the gathering. I mean, indifferent to the liturgy that kind of moves us through the gospel where we acknowledge when we come in with all kinds of sin problems, and yet God invites us to worship him and show us that he is able to absolve us in our sin problems when we corporately repent and confess, and that we profess our faith in him, and that that good news is so good that it gets down into the depths of our soul. So what do we do? We sing of his praise. We raise our hands, and then he instructs our souls to the word of God, which is what we're doing right now, that he he is the Savior, the Son of God, and that while we have been unfaithful to the covenant, he has been faithful and invites us to the table to renew our covenant with him. And then we go, he blesses us, and we go and live for him. That's what we do in the gathering. And then we ask our invited neighbor or family member or co-worker after the gathering what they thought, and they say, yeah, yeah, different. That talking thing you guys do, ooh, that's weird. See, if you appreciate the gathering, God has done something in you. See, we're born into this world blind to the things of God. We're born with this identity center so that in our cultural moment that we live, we are a little shocked by David's words in Psalm 51 verse 5, which says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother did my mother conceive me. Not, not birth me, conceive me. So from our conception, we are sinners just ready to be birthed and sin. Blind, in the dark, to our true condition. See, if you can't see your soul condition is blind to the things of God, there's no hope for you. Proverbs 26, 12 says it this way, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And at this moment, this is Nicodemus. He's a fool. What is it that Jesus says that can't be seen by Nicodemus specifically? Well, he says you can't see the kingdom of God. See, what the Jews wanted is much what we want today, and that is we just want God to reign. And so they were looking for the Messiah to return and to make all things new. But Nicodemus and the Pharisees, they were confident. They were confident that they were qualified for this kingdom, qualified certainly by birth, but doubly so by the estimation of their own character and their own actions. See, they assumed what many Israelites assumed. They assumed that their Jewish birth was good enough for the kingdom of God. And the preamble actually prepares us for this problem. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we had already read several weeks ago. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of the man, but of God. See, nothing human, however great and excellent we may have within us, nothing human can bring us into a place that we are called the child of God. See, what is necessary to participate in the kingdom of God is to be born again. See, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's steeped. You probably have in your mind's eye 
a little bit of tea here. And you've got that tea bag and you're putting it in there and you're steeping it, you keep it in there for a little bit and you let it get all the way through, all the way through into that water. You're steeping. And so the Pharisees, they were steeped into believing that the issue is one of performance. He has performed well. He doesn't realize the true condition of his heart and so he responds incredulously, verse four. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. From what we see throughout this back and forth, Nicodemus was truly struggling to understand what Jesus was getting at. And there's possibly even a certain degree of scorn by the whole thought of it. In verse four, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Ha! <laughs> Jesus answered, truly, truly, here's our second guaranteed statement of faith. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Okay, well, earlier he said we couldn't see the kingdom of God. Now he says you cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, to see the kingdom of God is to participate, is to enter into of the kingdom of God. See, one of the most startling features of the kingdom of God is that it is not exclusively in the future. It's being offered today. And according to Jesus, your Savior, the Son of God, you enter that kingdom by being born of water and the Spirit. All right, what does that mean? <laughs> Well, the expression is parallel to the first, born again. So to be born again is to be born of the water and the spirit. But again, what does this mean? Well, by the fact in verse 10 that Jesus scolds Nicodemus, who is Israel's teacher of the Old Testament, this suggests that we might want to turn to the Old Testament to understand what this means, to be born of water and the spirits. See, many Old Testament writers looked forward to a time when God's Spirit would be poured out on humanity with the result of a blessing and righteousness and an inward renewal which cleanses God's covenant people from their idolatry and disobedience. And so when water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, it points to a cleansing, especially in conjunction with the Spirit. And the most significant passage to see this is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Now, there was no collusion going on when Joel picked that verse for our absolution. I had no idea. And he had no idea what I was going to read. So here it is. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Tough word. <laughs> and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Sounds really like the New Testament to me. And so it's not surprising that immediately following this good news that God gives Ezekiel this surreal vision. It's in Ezekiel chapter 37. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> 
He gives him a vision in, in which he says, what do you see? And Ezekiel says, well, I see this valley of dry, dead bones. And he says, well, what do you see now? And he says, I see them coming together. I see sinews coming upon them. I see muscles going within them. I see flesh coming upon them. I see you breathing into their very bodies. They're alive. This is exactly what he has promised to all who will be born of water and the spirits. Alive. People who were previously dead. See, look back to our passage, verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Like generates like. So natural human birth produces people with a human nature. So the spirit rebirth produces people with a new nature, new spiritual nature. And it's with this clarity that Jesus now scolds Nicodemus, verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. See, this isn't about turning over a new leaf. This isn't about, you know, let's, let's try it again. Let's start over. No, the gospel is something outside of our control. Something powerful, invisible is required, like wind. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. The wind blew last night, didn't it? Wind is a force outside of our control, so it is in this sense sovereign. You hear the sound of it, Jesus says. They say a tornado sounds like a train barreling down upon one's house. We hear the sound as it roars through the trees or as it whistles through the tiny spaces within our windows. And it is invisible, he continues, but you cannot tell where it comes from and or where it is going. It is an invisible force that cannot be manipulated by our wills. So Jesus says, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the necessary invisible force that cannot be manipulated, but can powerfully destroy every argument that is built up against it for, not unlike a tornado, for the good of the person he determines to give new life to. Thus, Nicodemus, in his best intentions and commitment to the law, simply cannot please God. And the same is true for us. But what he could not do and what we cannot do, God can. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.11. Romans 8.11, he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then Paul uses some family language to describe our relationship. Romans 8.14, three verses later. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Sounds a lot like being born again. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing light. 
He's bringing light to the dark condition of Nicodemus' souls. He's bringing light to the dark condition of our souls that we might be born again. See, we are born every human being into this world with a profound spiritual darkness that requires a new birth if we are to truly see that Jesus is our Savior. We're in the dark about who Jesus is. We are in the dark about the condition of our souls. And thirdly, we are in the dark about the remedy. See, look at verse 9. Verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. See, doubtless, Nicodemus had been taught for years that the conditions for entering into God's kingdom were on him. Obedience to God's commands, devotion to God, submission to the Father's will in all his life. But here he is facing a condition, dark, and a need for something above him and outside of himself that he cannot control. Verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? See, Jesus' response projects the blame in focus. The problem is with Nicodemus. The problem is with us. The remedy has to be outside of us. Verse 11. Truly, truly, you can bank on this. I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. Okay, Jesus. Who's we? Who's we? Well, Jesus is uniquely qualified as the second person of the Trinity who has, if you go down to verse 13, second part, who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The reason they, the reason we can bank on this remedy is because he is speaking on behalf of God as the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. See, remember in the preamble, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now he's speaking. Verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So what are the earthly things that he has spoken of? Well, it is the necessity to be born again. To be born again is earthy in that it takes place here on earth. Jesus' teaching on the new birth, in other words, is elementary. If we want to know heavenly things about the kingdom of heaven, we cannot stumble over this elementary point of entry. So how is it that Jesus could speak so authoritatively about these things? Well, verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven. Now, you've got a problem. You can't get to heaven. You can't go in and figure it out. But what you can't do, I've done. Except, or you can translate it, rather... He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is a title almost exclusively given by Jesus about himself. And it's a reference back to Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days who gives one like the Son of Man the right to rule over all the nations. Jesus is the Son of Man who they anticipated one day would reign. But his reign will come in an anticipated way. And it is found in God's remedy. 
to our sin problem. Verses 14 and 15. See, Jesus points back to what is familiar to Nicodemus, the Old Testament. In other words, the story of God's people. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, this is a reference to God's people wandering in the wilderness after being rescued from their Egyptian slavery. And they are coming to the end of their 40-year wilderness wanderings, and they're getting a bit impatient. In Numbers 21, verse 5, it reads this way, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless bread, or this worthless food, which is manna. See, in one sense, what they're complaining about is true. The wilderness wasn't equipped to feed and water a nation. Food and water was scarce in the desert wilderness. But in a real sense, there was food and there was water. That was the essence of their story. God had provided both. He was great He was good, he was gracious, and provided what they couldn't, he had cared for them for 40 years. And so they complained in unbelief. So God commanded one of his created beings, serpents, to bite the complainers. And this discipline had a purpose. It had a purpose to cause repentance for their lack of gratefulness, for their lack of trust in God's goodness, and they're walking all over His grace. And I don't think it's a stretch to return all the way back to the original garden. It was one of His created beings, Satan, in the form of a, ser- of a snake, a serpent, who tempted Adam and Eve to question God's grace, God's goodness, God's greatness. And when they did, it was as if they were snake-bitten. And so it continues today. We are snake-bitten people. (laughs) But God's gracious. So God's people... They came to Moses in Numbers 21, 7 through 9, came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. See, see, here's repentance. God gives a means for us to receive his grace and to acknowledge the truth, the truth about ourselves. And so (laughs) he's gracious. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And Yahweh said to Moses, here you go. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone is bent and when he sees it shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. See, there was nothing magical about the bronze serpent. What what, what would save the snake bits an individual was their trust in God's word that all who would look up to the bronze snake 
would live. That would recognize, I am a sinner. I did this. I complained. I walked all over your grace. I didn't think you were good. And if they would just simply look to God's solution, God's remedy, they would have new life. And in fact, they'd be born again. See, Jesus is the perfect Moses. That is the perfect prophet of God and of whom God the Father had appointed to not only be the deliverer of the message of the remedy, but also to be the remedy. See, what did he say? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. See, the king that you're looking for, the one that you're going to reign over this world, well, he is the son of man. He is coming, but he's coming in an interesting way, and that is that he's coming as one who's going to die on your behalf. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to take your sins in his body and suffer and die and take the full wrath, observe the full wrath of God upon you, upon him. And he's going to die. So that everyone, verse 15, who believes in what he has done for them on the cross may have eternal life in him. See, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit who will come into your life and give you life. You will be born again. Jesus was lifted up on the cross at Calvary that everyone who looks, everyone who sees, Do you see it? Believes upon him will have eternal life. And you will enter the kingdom of God today. We are born into this world, snake bitten by sin, and thus in the dark to who Jesus is. Dark to the condition of our soul and to God's remedy. But if the spirit of God is blowing today in your soul, and you agree that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Son of God, and that you are a sinner in need of him, and that the only remedy is Jesus' death on on your behalf on the cross, if the Spirit is blowing in your soul today, believe, trust, call out to him as your Lord and Savior, and you will be born again. Believer, if this resonates with you, (laughs) if you love this stuff, give God thanks. Give him praise. As you reflect upon this past week in the sin that you lived in and thought, man, I hate this. I hate this sin problem within my life, this struggle that I have in my life. Give God praise. The reason you hate it is because you are born again. And if you are looking out to tomorrow or the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year, if you're looking out in the future and wondering, is God going to be there for me? Oh, you just have to look back to the cross and see, oh, he's for you. He will go, go with you. He will be with you. You are born again. You are one of his children, born of God. Father, thank you. Uh, there was, there's no hope, no hope for any of us here. We are the man. We are the woman. We are the one that Jesus sees and knows that without you, Father, through your spirit doing a work we'd be have, we would have no hope, like Nicodemus. 
But we thank you, Father. We thank you today for the blowing of the Holy Spirit, the power of the invisible force that we cannot manipulate, but that you use to knock down all the foolish arguments that we have against you. We pray, knock them down for our good, for your glory. Father, thank you as we now celebrate this supper that you give to us, that we again remember that Jesus took, by taking this bread, Jesus took our, our sins in his body and died. And Father, as we take this wine, this juice, we're reminded that he shed his blood. Life had to be given. Life for life. Only God, God's life would be enough for our lives And so we remember what Jesus did for us by shedding of his blood. Thank you, Father, that that was not the end. That death was defeated by his resurrection. Thank you, Father, that through new life we can have his life, we can have new life in Christ. That it's not just a turning over of a leaf, but you have caused us to be born again. We praise you and thank you as we take this meal. We pray these things in Christ's name.